Hey folks, welcome back to Excuse Me History. It's your host, Joe. Um, hope everyone had a good Thanksgiving, and uh, hope everyone's holidays are going well so far. I won't do a very long introduction today. I will say that last episode, I did say that I was going to be talking about the Second Day's Battle in this episode. Well, it didn't really quite get to that. Uh, <laughs> kind of got sidetracked on some other stuff. This is kind of a setup episode, but uh, still a lot of stuff happens. Lots of interesting controversies. That we'll be going over, and of course, make sure to like the podcast on Facebook, subscribe to it on whatever podcast app you use, and give it a five-star rating if that is possible. But anyway, let's start the show. When the guns began to go silent on the evening of July 1st, 1863, a combined 15,000 soldiers were either dead, wounded, or missing. The Battle of Gettysburg could have ended that day and would still be remembered as one of the most significant engagements of the Civil War. For a fight that only lasted a few hours and involved only parts of the Union and Confederate armies, it quickly escalated into an intense struggle. The characterization of Gettysburg as a meeting engagement, meaning a battle that was not planned, where two opposing forces unexpectedly meet, is sometimes exaggerated. Sure, neither General R.E. Lee or George Meade wished to fight a battle on July 1st, but from contemporaneous accounts, both believed that a battle was inevitable. They both even thought it likely that Gettysburg would be where they'd collide. But the casualties do indicate that neither army went into the first day of battle with a real plan. As more troops arrived, they were thrown into the fight. Considering that both sides had roughly the same level of morale, the end results were determined mostly by mass and timing. The arrival of the Confederate Third Corps west of town and the Second Corps north of town almost simultaneously proved to be too much for the numerically inferior Union First and Eleventh Corps. But for the quick thinking of brigade, regimental, and company commanders, and the discipline and determination of the common soldier, the vanguard of the Army of the Potomac barely escaped annihilation. The Confederates missed an opportunity to bag two Union Corps, but here on July 1st we see the problem that plagued Civil War armies. Unless attacks were perfectly coordinated and executed, even a numerically superior force would have a difficult time dislodging an army in a defensive stance. Once they'd driven the Federals from their positions north and west of Gettysburg, infantry alone was not fast enough to be able to cut off their retreat. In earlier eras of war, cavalry would have been sent to pursue and harass the routed force, but tacticians of the Civil War had largely abandoned this way of thinking. Even a defeated foe was still dangerous. Napoleon's armies carried with them a sense of national pride and revolutionary fervor. It's one of the key things that made French forces of the late 18th and early 19th century so powerful. It took years, decades in some cases, for the other European powers to catch up. But the Civil War was truly an ideological war. Sure, there were material reasons for the conflict, but from the generals at the top all the way down to the common soldier, the men who fought in this war carried with them ideals that motivated them to fight and die for their respective countries. Both the Army of Northern Virginia and the Army of the Potomac possessed an esprit de corps, a French term meaning the feeling of pride, fellowship, and common loyalty, that made it nearly impossible for either army to be destroyed in a battle. Both sides could hammer away at each other, losing hundreds or thousands of soldiers in the process, and still get up and fight again the next day. General George Gordon Meade spent most of July 1st at his headquarters in Tawnytown, Maryland, about 13 miles south of Gettysburg. 
It was difficult for me to do anything but react to the developing situation. As we discussed a couple of episodes ago, his plan was not to attack Lee's army at Gettysburg. Contemporaries and historians have debated Meade's and Reynolds' intentions on July 1st and the century and a half since. Well into July 1st, Meade's primary plan for the army was to move to Big Pipe Creek, where defensive line had been planned. When he ordered Reynolds to move the 1st Corps to Gettysburg, it was not to make a defensive stand there, but rather to perform a reconnaissance in force. A reconnaissance in force is a classic military operation that involves moving a portion of your own force ahead of the main body of the army to essentially make the enemy force deploy and show his hand. It's an operational concept that preeminent military theorists like Jomini and Clausewitz both described in their respective works, and it's something that Dennis Hart Mahan taught to his students at West Point. All of the West Pointers in both armies, and anyone who read Jomini or Clausewitz would understand what this meant. This type of military move needed a substantial force to execute it properly. Buford's cavalry alone was not enough to stop four Confederate divisions for more than a couple of hours. The previously mentioned military scientists called for a sizable force that included infantry, cavalry, and artillery to act as the advance guard. In this case, the advance guard was the infantry and artillery of the 1st Corps, aided by Buford's two cavalry brigades. The advance guard of the Army of the Potomac was not large enough to hold off the Confederates indefinitely, but it would force them to deploy into battle formations and proceed slowly and with caution. In the meantime, Reynolds and Buford's scouts could more easily gather intelligence on the rebels, which they'd report to Meade. After this was accomplished, Reynolds was to fall back to Emmitsburg, Maryland, and the rest of the army would march to their planned positions along Pipe Creek. John Reynolds never learned of the Pipe Creek plan, but it's certain that he knew his orders were only to perform a reconnaissance in force. Two things, however, threw a wrench into this plan. One was Reynolds' decision to join Buford's troopers west of Gettysburg. Reynolds did this likely because he felt the loss of the town would be bad for the morale of both the soldiers and the local citizenry. Had Reynolds simply ordered the occupation of Cemetery Hill, the course of the battle would have changed drastically because A.P. Hill and Ewell would have been able to link up more easily, but the Federals would have been in a better defensive position. The second thing that changed Meade's plan was the death of Reynolds and his replacement by General Abner Doubleday. The wing commander informed him of his plans that morning, but Doubleday later claimed that he was unaware that this was the case. Likely he was trying to cover for himself. He wrote after the battle that when Reynolds had been killed, it, quote, would have been the proper time to retire, but to fall back might have inflicted lasting disgrace upon the Corps, and as General Reynolds, who was high in the confidence of General Meade, had formed his lines to resist the entrance of the enemy into Gettysburg, I naturally suppose that it was his intention to defend the place, unquote. That sounds like an acceptable defense of his actions, but I think it was likely that he was simply unprepared to order the First Corps to fall back, and it was easier just to stay and fight. Over the course of the day, George Meade received reports that gradually forced him to change his plans. He'd prepared a message to send to General Halleck of the Pipe Creek plan, but he never sent it. I think ultimately he might have done so, but when General Winfield Scott Hancock told him of the strength of their position on Cemetery Hill, he changed his mind. Instead, he ordered the Army Corps that weren't already marching toward Gettysburg to do so. The 12th and 3rd Corps would arrive at Gettysburg beginning on the evening of the 1st and throughout the course of the morning on the 2nd. The 2nd Corps would arrive early the next morning, and the 5th was on the field in the early afternoon. Only General John Sedgwick's 6th Corps, the largest in the Army, would not be available for action the next day. It had guarded the Army's right flank at Manchester, Maryland. To reach Gettysburg, it still had to march more than 30 miles. But on the evening of the 1st, the entire Army of the Potomac was either near Gettysburg or in motion toward it. 
Meade stayed at Tawny Town until sometime after 10 p.m., coordinating the Army Corps and handling the various logistical problems that he faced. Jeb Stewart's cavalry had managed to cut his line of communications with Washington a couple of days earlier, which forced them to send couriers further away to reach operational telegraph lines. The rebel horsemen had also torn up much of the tracks of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, which was the Federal's most valuable supply line. By the first, the rail lines and telegraph wires had been restored, but Meade was still nagged by the need to supply his army. The three things that they needed most were shoes, food, and ammunition. As much as a quarter of the Army of the Potomac was shoeless at that point. Shoes. Three days' worth of rations had been issued to the soldiers, but similar to the Army of Northern Virginia, the Federals foraged as they went along and requisitioned supplies from the locals. Many officers complained about the price gouging done by the Pennsylvania farmers. Meade worried about the amount of ammunition available for a large fight. Since he'd ordered most of the wagon trains to the rear, one big fight could sap their supply and they'd be forced to retreat. The horses in the army were also in great need of food. Soldiers could go more than a week on half rations and still perform adequately, whereas horses would break down in only a couple of days. Without horses and mules to pull wagons, guns, and caissons, the progress of an army would grind to a halt. The Army of the Potomac's chief quartermaster, General Rufus Ingalls, and the quartermaster general of the Federal Army, General Montgomery C. Meigs, worked with General Meade to establish a base of supplies that could keep the army fed and clothed. Meade always intended for Westminster, Maryland to be their base of supplies when the Pipe Creek plan was still in effect. Ultimately, both Westminster and Union Bridge, Maryland would be used as supply depots. Trains ran back and forth constantly, and from there, 5,000 wagons, along with 30,000 mules, would carry the material to Gettysburg. Relay teams of men on horseback were also set up to carry messages back and forth from the telegraph stations to the battlefield so that the Army and the White House were able to stay in contact. There was also the issue of the troops at Harper's Ferry that were now under Meade's command. He'd been frustrated by the slowness of its garrison commander, General William French, but was satisfied to learn that French and several thousand soldiers had arrived at Frederick that evening. There, they'd protect vital rail and communication lines from rebel infantry, as well as Jeb Stewart's cavalry, which was still lurking somewhere on the periphery in Maryland or Pennsylvania. Back at Gettysburg, reinforcements slowly arrived from south and east. General John Geary, the six-foot-six former mayor of San Francisco and governor of the Kansas Territory, led his division of the 12th Corps onto the field, where Hancock directed him to move to the southern portion of Cemetery Ridge in a hill most commonly referred to as Little Round Top. When the other division of the 12th Corps arrived, the one led by General Alpheus S. Williams, they were sent to occupy Culp's Hill. General Dan Sickles' 3rd Corps, save for a couple of brigades, came up from the south along the Emmitsburg Road. First in line was General David Burney's division, which marched toward the eastern side of Cemetery Ridge. Behind Burney was the division of General Andrew Humphreys, who was ordered by Sickles to take an alternate route along the Fairfield Road by way of Black Horse Tavern to avoid road congestion. Humphreys reluctantly followed the direction, but was worried by the warning signs that Confederate infantry might be nearby. He halted the column and rode ahead with his staff only to find that they were a few hundred yards away from a large force of rebels southwest of Gettysburg. Frustrated that they wasted time marching the wrong way, Humphrey ordered his division to countermarch back toward the Emmitsburg Road. They wouldn't reunite with Bernie's division until around 2 in the morning. So just a couple of hours after midnight, four of the seven Army Corps were in the vicinity of Gettysburg. The second corps went into bivouac a few miles south of the Round Tops and would reach the Union lines sometime between 5 and 6 a.m. The 5th Corps marched west from Hanover and arrived at Wolf Hill about a mile to the east of the Union right flank around 7 a.m. 
By the time the battle began on July 2nd, all but the 6th Corps of the Army of the Potomac was in line or within supporting distance. Before Meade left Tawnytown to join the army south of Gettysburg, he made a major decision about Reynolds' replacement. Convinced by Hancock and Howard of Doubleday's incompetence on July 1st, he sent orders to Major General John Newton to take command of the 1st Corps. John Newton was a 40-year-old native of Norfolk, Virginia, and attended West Point where he graduated second in his class of 1842. Because of his high standing, he was given a lieutenant's commission in the Army Corps of Engineers, which he served in for nearly two decades, building fortifications along the coast of the Atlantic Ocean, Great Lakes, and Gulf of Mexico. Unlike most of his peers in the Antebellum Army, he'd seen no combat in Mexico or any of the various Indian Wars. When the Civil War broke out, Newton sided with the Union even though he'd been born and raised in Virginia. He began the war as an engineer and helped design the fortifications of Washington, D.C., but by 1862, he left the engineers for combat command. He led a brigade during the Peninsula and Maryland campaigns and shortly after was promoted to division command. After the Battle of Fredericksburg, he was part of the cabal of officers who conspired to have General Ambrose Burnside removed from command of the Army of the Potomac. On July 1st, he commanded the 3rd Division of the 6th Corps until he was tapped to take the place of Doubleday. Why he was chosen is a matter of debate. It's clear that Meade had little respect for Abner Doubleday's abilities. His handling of the 1st Corps on the first day of battle was enough for Meade to put him back at division command. But Meade had issues with Doubleday going back for almost a year. Some have alleged that there were political motivations for the decision. Doubleday was one of the few prominent Republicans at his rank in the Army of the Potomac. Newton, it's alleged, was rewarded for being a member of the democracy, and also perhaps because he was a McClellanite and had been part of the anti-Burnside conspiracy. Though it's true that Meade was also a Democrat, he was hardly a partisan of McClellan, and there's not really any evidence of politics having an effect on his decision. It seems that he just had a tremendous amount of respect for Newton's abilities, especially as an engineer, plus he had the authority from the War Department to appoint commanders as he saw fit. Abner Doubleday was deeply offended by the move. Not only was Newton Jr. in rank, but he came from another corps in the army. Nevertheless, he returned to command his division for the time being. It was awkward for Newton as well, because unbeknownst to Meade, the two had been classmates at West Point. Around 10 p.m., General Hancock arrived back at Tawnytown, where he briefly conferred with Meade. Meade left shortly after with his staff, minus General Dan Butterfield, who stayed behind in case any couriers were sent there, and rode to Gettysburg. After briefly stopping to meet with General John Gibbon, who was temporarily in command of the 2nd Corps, he arrived at Cemetery Hill sometime after midnight on July 2nd. General Slocum, Howard, and Sickles had gathered near the cemetery gatehouse where they'd set up headquarters. When he arrived, he met with those three corps commanders as well as General Governor Warren, the chief engineer. Meade said to Howard, quote, Well, Howard, what do you think? Is this the place to fight the battle? Unquote. Howard replied, quote, I am confident we can hold this position, unquote. Slocum concurred, quote, It is good for defense. It is a good place to fight from, General, unquote. Meade said to his lieutenants, quote, I'm glad to hear you say so, gentlemen, for it is too late to leave it, unquote. Meade subsequently muttered to himself, but loud enough for others to hear, quote, We may fight it out here as well as anywhere else, unquote. Meade had only slept a few hours here and there over the past three days, and had yet to change his clothes since he'd been ordered to take command of the army. I can relate to this. Sometimes I go days without showering or changing clothes to get these episodes out. I think, damn Joe, you stink. Maybe you should clean yourself. But no, I must get to work on the podcast. 
Despite Meade's exhaustion, he inspected the Union lines as well as surveyed the Confederate position several hundred yards off during the moonlit hours of July 2nd. Though he agreed with his generals that their position on the cemetery and Culp's Hills were strong, he feared that their position could be turned by the Confederates. His other big worry was that the Baltimore Pike was vulnerable to capture. The Baltimore Pike was the lifeline of the Army of the Potomac. It connected Gettysburg to Westminster, their main base of supplies. That all-important road had to be held at all costs because otherwise the Federals could not keep themselves supplied and would be forced to fall back. The Pike ran straight up to Cemetery Hill, the apex of the Union defensive line. If they were going to be attacked the next day, their main line of supplies and communication would be threatened. To ensure that the position was well defended, he ordered that General Geary's division move from Little Round Top to Culp's Hill to connect Williams' division on the eastern side of the hill to Wadsworth's division of the First Corps on the western side. He also had General Henry Hunt, the Army's chief of artillery, place guns to defend that sector of the line. By the time the sun rose on July 2nd, the shape of the Union position was beginning to resemble the shape of a fish hook. This will make sense if you visit the Facebook page and check out the maps I'll be posting for this episode, or you can just Google Battle of Gettysburg Second Day Map. But basically, the point and barb of the hook represent the 12th Corps position on Culp's Hill. The placement of the 1st and 11th Corps along the western part of Culp's Hill and Cemetery Hill are the bend of the hook. Once Hancock's 2nd Corps moved into position along Cemetery Ridge, they became the shank of the hook. And finally, the extreme left of the Union position, which was on the southern portion of Cemetery Ridge and ended near Little Round Top, would ultimately be occupied by Devil Dan Sickles' 3rd Corps. They were the eye of the hook. This fishhook shape was a great position to be in because it gave the Army of the Potomac the advantage of interior lines. The gap between the point and the shank could be used to maneuver troops from one end of the line to the other as the situation might call for, and they'd be able to do so out of range of most of the enemy's artillery. For the Army of Northern Virginia, July 1st was at the same time both a success, but also a missed opportunity. Four of the nine Confederate divisions converged on Gettysburg with near-perfect timing, but near-perfect it seemed was not good enough to destroy the advance guard of the Army of the Potomac. But driving the enemy from their front and capturing the town was nothing to scoff at. It certainly was, in the moment, a morale boost to the soldiers. It showed them that even in Union territory, they could still carry a position through sheer force of will. When the fighting ceased on the evening of the 1st, reinforcements began to arrive. General Richard Anderson's division had already been in supporting distance on the Chambersburg Pike, a few miles west of town when the battle reached its crescendo. Shortly after, Allegheny Johnson's division came marching down the pike and moved east of town to join the rest of Ewell's Corps. Before the day was over, two-thirds of the Army of Northern Virginia was present. Only Longstreet's Corps had yet to arrive. Two of his divisions were set to reach Gettysburg in the morning, but Pickett's division, which stayed behind at Chambersburg until they were relieved by General John and Bowden's Cavalry Brigade, wasn't expected to be available for action on the 2nd. Though the rebels had captured Gettysburg, that all-important road hub, the real blight of the day was failing to seize the high ground south of town that the Union forces ended up occupying and fortifying throughout the evening and overnight. Cemetery Hill was the obvious paramount position, but Culp's Hill to its east was also of importance. Generals Richard Ewell, Robert Rhodes, and Jubal Early had hesitated to advance in the heights. Partially, it was because most of Rhodes and Early's divisions were thoroughly exhausted from marching and fighting, but also because of the potential threat of Union reinforcements on their left flank. 
Ewell decided it would be prudent to wait for his own reinforcements, that of Johnson's division, to take Culp's Hill, which was believed to be unoccupied or at the very least only lightly defended. But General Lee began to wonder if Ewell's corps should even be in that position. Though Lee and Longstreet earlier had some disagreement about how to proceed, they did both seem to believe that any kind of attack or turning movement should be done against the Union left flank, not its right. This would mean that on July 2nd, either Longstreet's corps would make an attack against the Federal left, or Ewell's corps would leave its position east of Gettysburg, march around to the west and then to the south, where it would operate as the right wing of the Confederate army instead of the left. Colonel Edward Porter Alexander later wrote of Ewell's current position, quote, It was an awkward place, far from our line of retreat, and not convenient either for reinforcing others or being reinforced. This part of the enemy's position was strongest, and it was practically almost unassailable, unquote. It seems as if Lee held this same view, for he even sent orders to Ewell that evening that said, quote, Draw your corps around to the right in case it cannot be used to advantage where it was, unquote. Sometime after 6 p.m., Lee rode to Ewell's headquarters, located north of town at the Blotcher Farm, to confer with him about the possibilities of attacking or maneuvering around to the right. Supposedly, it was Jubal Early that dominated the conversation. He vehemently argued against moving the 2nd Corps from its current position in order to make an attack the following day. Ewell, Rhodes, and Early all concur that Longstreet's Corps should make the attack. Lee left the meeting and returned to his own headquarters, but the issue was far from finished. After mulling it over for a while, Lee sent Major Charles Marshall, one of his staff officers, with orders to Ewell that he should give up the ground east of Gettysburg and move around to the right in order to be in a position to an attack, or at the very least, support an attack made by Longstreet or Hill soldiers. This time, Ewell rode to Lee's headquarters and again argued against moving his corps. Though Lee and Longstreet believed that the Federal left provided the best opportunity to make an attack, Dick Ewell told the army commander that Culp's Hill could be taken, and that he'd already given orders to Allegheny Johnson to do so. Capturing Culp's Hill would make the federal position on Cemetery Hill untenable. Whether he agreed with him or not, Lee acquiesced to Ewell's position on the matter. It might not have been the fatal mistake made by the Confederate leadership at Gettysburg, but it was certainly one of several missteps that could have drastically changed the results of the battle. Again, Porter Alexander probably put it best. Quote, Yet the orders to come out from the awkward place he was in, where there was no reasonable probability of accomplishing any good on the enemy's line in his front, and where his artillery was of no service, were never renewed, and he stayed there to the last. No one ordered the division to be carried back to the right, where it could have been of much service in subsequent operations, and where Lee had intended it to be. It was far too weak to attack the strong position of the enemy on Culp's Hill, and its communication with the rest of the army was long, roundabout, and exposed to the enemy's view. Unquote. If the Union army by the morning of July 2nd had the advantage of interior lines, the Confederates had the disadvantage of exterior lines. Their lines were spread out over a greater distance, and shifting any troops would take longer, and in many cases be in full view of the enemy. Had Lee been more assertive and firm with Ewell, they could have at least alleviated some of the problems that they'd face over the course of the next couple of days. Attacks could have been more easily coordinated, and reinforcements would have been more readily available in case their offensive operations were successful, and they made some sort of breakthrough. Ewell mistakenly gave too much discretion to Johnson. His division was led east of Gettysburg and just north of Culp's Hill, Ewell's instructions to him were to take Culp's Hill if it was unoccupied by the enemy, which by that time was not the case. 
General James Wadworth's division of the 1st Corps, which included the battered Iron Brigade and General Lysander Cutler's Brigade, had taken up a position along the crest of the hill facing north and were already building defensive fortifications. Johnson was unsure how to proceed and basically did nothing for nearly five hours. During this time, Ewell was meeting with Lee and his other division commanders and lost track of Johnson's progress. By the time he reconnected with him around midnight, he learned that his division had made no attempt to seize the hill. Despite the lateness of the hour, he ordered Johnson to go forward with the operation. In the darkness, skirmishers of his division made their way up the rocky, wooded slope of Culp's Hill, only to run into the 7th Indiana Infantry of Cutler's Brigade. The Hoosiers opened fire on the advancing rebel skirmishers, and a brief fight broke out, but after taking casualties, they fell back to safety. To make matters worse for Johnson, he was informed that the 12th Corps was nearby, likely on the battlefield, and that the 5th Corps was only a few miles away to the east. Fearing that his left flank was vulnerable to attack, Johnson made no further attempt to take the hill until the next day when the situation was more clear. So what exactly was Lee's plan going into July 2nd? That's a difficult question to answer. A lot of people claimed a lot of different things, and it seemed like the situation was pretty fluid. Lee simply did not have a solid plan for July 2nd other than the broad goal of using the right wing of his own army to attack the federal left. Some of the high-ranking officers that were present would later claim that his plan was set late on July 1st or sometime after midnight on the 2nd, and the operation would involve the 1st Corps making an early morning assault. The sunrise attack theory has little basis in fact, and it's largely the invention of ex-Confederate lost cause writers who wanted to paint James Longstreet as the scapegoat for the results of July 2nd. Major William Allen, a staff officer serving in the 2nd Corps, later wrote, quote, On the night of the 1st, not on the forenoon of the 2nd, as General Longstreet has it, Lee decided, after a conference with Ewell and his division commanders, to make the attack early the next day from his right with Longstreet's two divisions that were within reach, this attack to be supported by Hill and Ewell, unquote. Others, including Generals Jubal Early, Fitzhugh Lee, William Pendleton, and Cadmus Wilcox, would also take up this narrative after the war. Of those four generals, Early is the only one that definitely spoke with Lee on the night of the 1st, but none of the other generals who were present with him corroborate his claim. Pendleton likely encountered Lee at some point on the 1st, but he makes no mention of it anywhere in his post-battle report. Wilcox, a brigade commander in Anderson's division of the 3rd Corps, almost certainly had no conversation with him and Fitzhugh Lee was nowhere near Gettysburg on July 1st. At that time, he was still riding with General Stewart miles away somewhere else in Pennsylvania. Simply put, the sunrise attack theory is rubbish, created by lost cause defenders of Lee, who wish to exonerate him at the expense of James Longstreet. Even Colonel Armistead Long, Lee's military secretary and one of his staunchest postbellum defenders, who was with the army commander almost more than anyone else that day, made no mention of an early morning assault. To the contrary, Ari Lee stayed up the entire night trying to come up with an operational plan for the next day, but was continually bothered by the absence of Jeb Stewart. Armistead Long wrote later that he was asked by the general, quote, Colonel Long, do you think we had better attack without cavalry? If we do, we will not, if successful, be able to reap the fruits of victory, unquote. Not only did he not have a solidified plan of attack by midnight, he still wavered in whether or not they should even attack at all. General Longstreet and his staff rode back to meet with his division commanders. First in line was General Lafayette McClaw's division, which had marched on the Chambersburg Pike across South Mountain through Cashtown and had arrived at Marsh Creek near Hare Ridge, about four miles west of Gettysburg, where they went into bivouac sometime after dark on the 1st. 
Following behind them was the division of General John Bell Hood, who came to that location around midnight. The soldiers, exhausted and dehydrated, were awoken at 3 a.m., hours before sunrise, and began readying for the day's action. Though this had yet to be determined, McClaw's and Hood's divisions would have at least six miles to march before they'd be in the correct position that day. Over the course of the next few hours, Longstreet's troops made their way toward the battlefield, while Lee awaited reports about the position of the Army of the Potomac. Around 4.30 a.m., Lee sent Captain Samuel Johnston to scout the Federal left and determine exactly where it ended. Johnston supposedly reconnoitered the area on the southern portion of the battlefield, which included features like the Emmitsburg Road, the peach orchard owned by Joseph Sherfee, the farm owned by George Rose, Houck's Ridge and its infamous southern section referred to as the Devil's Den, and the two hills known as Little and Big Round Top. Johnston returned to Lee's headquarters on Seminary Ridge sometime after 7.30 a.m. He reported that there was no Federal infantry south of Cemetery Hill, and with this information, R.E. Lee went about finalizing a plan of attack. That morning, he again talked with Dick Yule about the prospects of either moving his corps or making an attack on Culp's Hill. Yule reiterated his stance that it was a bad idea to move troops away from their current position, but he was also not terribly confident about the practicability of driving the Union forces from the high ground. After talking with Yule, Longstreet, and Captain Johnston, it was decided once and for all that the main assault would be launched against the left wing of the Army of the Potomac, and it would be made by elements of the 1st and 3rd Corps. McClaw's and Hood's divisions were to march to the Emmitsburg Road near the Sherfy Peach Orchard. They'd straddle the road with McClaw's four brigades on the left and Hood's four on the right. From there, they'd march up the road in the direction of Cemetery Hill, where they'd strike the left flank of the Union Army. As they advanced northward, General Richard Anderson's division of A.P. Hill's Corps would advance eastward from Seminary Ridge, across the Emmitsburg Road, and hit Cemetery Hill from the west, while Longstreet's troops were attacking from the south. While this attack was in progress, Allegheny Johnson's division would make demonstrative attacks against Culp's Hill to pin down the troops there and prevent the Yankees from shifting their troops to Cemetery Hill. If Johnson's infantry made any progress, it could develop into a full-out assault. The other four divisions of the army would be held in reserve in case a breakthrough was made. Lee's plan was pretty good in theory. If it worked, both wings of the Army of Northern Virginia would drive the Union position in on itself, and potentially cut off its primary route of escape along the Baltimore Pike. But there was one big problem. Lee's plan was based on incredibly faulty intelligence. In fact, there was quite a bit of Union activity south of Cemetery Hill, contrary to what Johnston's report suggested. As I discussed earlier, Geary's division occupied the southern portion of Cemetery Ridge and the northern slope of Little Round Top. Sickles' corps was nearby on the eastern slope of Cemetery Ridge, and Hancock's corps was bivouacked just south of Big Round Top and marched to Cemetery Ridge early that morning. General Buford's cavalry was acting as a screen on the Federal left. Yankee troopers and horse artillery were in and around the Peach Orchard at that time. Exactly how Johnston got as close to the Union lines as he did without seeing a significant body of troops is unclear. Either he misled his superiors about exactly where he went that morning, or he did in fact get within a few hundred yards of the round tops and somehow didn't see any Federal infantry or cavalry. But not only was Lee blind to the exact location of the Federal forces, he was also ignorant to their size as well. Conversations with Colonel Long indicate that he only thought two or three corps opposed his army, but by the time the Confederates were about to launch their attack, there were basically five corps in a defensive position and an additional two within supporting distance. Again, the lack of experienced cavalry was a big hindrance on Lee's ability to create an effective strategy. 
had Stuart's three brigades been present, the events of July 2nd would have transpired much differently. Perhaps James Longstreet would have been able to more successfully lobby for a turning movement around the federal left that he preferred. It wasn't until 11 a.m. that General Lee finally issued orders for the day. Longstreet was directed to move his two divisions to the Emmitsburg Road, where they'd begin their attack. Additionally, he received the instruction to keep his men out of view of the Union signalmen on the summit of Little Round Top. Both armies developed and used a system of flag signals. The signal team would occupy hills, ridges, or mountains that were visible for long distances. They would use their flags to communicate with the other signal stations on nearby hills. It was a fairly effective way of disseminating information quickly in order to avoid telegraph wires which were impossible to set up on a battlefield or couriers on horseback which were slow and could easily be intercepted. If the signalmen at Little Roundtop spotted a large body of Confederate infantry, they would wave their flags in a certain pattern to inform the signal team at Cemetery Hill, who would forward the information to General Meade. In order to avoid being spotted, Captain Johnson was sent on a second reconnaissance mission that morning to find a path that they could take that would keep them out of view of the Federal signalmen. Longstreet accepted his orders, but did ask for permission to delay the march until the arrival of Brigadier General Evander Law's brigade of Hood's division. On July 1st, Hood had ordered Law's brigade to stay at Guilford, Pennsylvania, about 21 miles west of Gettysburg, while the rest of the division marched toward the town. The soldiers of Law's brigade were awoken at 3 a.m. on the 2nd, and quickly began their march. In less than 9 hours, they traveled more than 20 miles to rejoin Hood's division at Gettysburg. This was another point on which Longstreet was heavily criticized for. He was accused of purposely delaying the movement of his corps as a way of protesting Lee's orders. This alleged subtle act of sabotage was his last attempt at trying to force the army commander to call off the attack and initiate a more wide-sweeping turning move, but there's pretty much no evidence to support this theory. The best that anyone can come up with is that General Lafayette McClaws accused Longstreet of seeming annoyed when they first met with Lee that morning, but subsequent events will show that McClaws had beef with his corps commander, which we'll get to in a little more detail later. In post-war accounts, Lee himself was sometimes described as frustrated or annoyed by Longstreet's attitude on the morning of the 2nd, but again, mostly by people who weren't actually present to see the two together. As regards Longstreet's request to wait for Law's brigade, Lee seemed to have no problem with it. Although many would claim that Lee was anxious to begin the attack, he didn't admonish Longstreet for his alleged slowness. The commanding general himself was said to be acting strangely that morning. Captain Justus Scheibert, a Prussian military engineer currently with the Army of Northern Virginia as an observer, later wrote, quote, Lee was not at his ease, but was riding to and fro, frequently changing his position, making anxious inquiries here and there, and looking careworn. The uneasiness was contagious to the Army, as will appear from the reports of Longstreet, Hood, Heath, and others, and also appeared to me from the peep I had of the battlefield, unquote. General John Bell Hood, who was with his two superiors that morning, wrote to Longstreet after the war that Lee, quote, walked up and down in the shade of large trees near us, halting now and then to observe the enemy. He seemed full of hope, yet at times buried deep in thought, unquote. Hood also remembered Longstreet telling him on July 2nd, quote, the general is a little nervous this morning. He wishes me to attack. I do not wish to do so without picket. I never like to go into battle with one boot off, unquote. So here we can see that while Longstreet did not want to make the attack, a lot of it had to do with the fact that one-third of his corps was missing, and though he was willing to go through with it, he wanted to wait until the two divisions that he had were at full strength. 
Law's brigade, made up of 1,900 Alabamians, was the largest of Hood's division. Ari Lee, normally quite the stoic figure, seemed anxious to most who encountered him. Longstreet chalked it up to, quote, subdued excitement, which occasionally took possession of him when the hunt was up, and threatened his superb equipoise, unquote. His health was also of some level of concern. Captain William Blackford would later write that he suffered, quote, a good deal from an attack of diarrhea, unquote. Several of Lee's own staff officers confirmed that, especially later in the day, he basically couldn't stop shitting, and it was taking a toll on his physical state. Could it have been that Lee's performance at Gettysburg was affected by explosive diarrhea? Obviously, we'll never know for sure, but I don't think it's out of the question to say that it was one of the many factors that might have hampered his judgment. As we've discussed numerous times on this show before, people did not have good poops up until, like, 50 years ago. It was not uncommon to shit yourself to death because of poor diet or contaminated drinking water. And think of your own self having to deal with diarrhea at your job today. Performing routine tasks is difficult when you're having to run to the bathroom every five minutes. Anyway, sometime between 12.30 and 1 in the afternoon, Longstreet's two divisions, along with his reserve artillery battalion, set off to get into position to launch their attack. Captain Samuel Johnson was assigned by Lee to lead McClaw's division to their destination. But not long after their march was underway, they passed the Black Horse Tavern on the Fairfield Road, when all of a sudden, Johnston and McClaws realized that the road beyond the tavern rose to an elevation that would reveal the presence of the Confederate column to the Federal Signal Corps on Little Round Top. The troops were halted until they could find an alternate route that would keep them concealed. Longstreet, who had been riding at the rear of McClaws' division with General Lee, rode ahead to see what had caused the delay. When McClaws explained the situation, he suggested that they turn around and march a different way, which one of his staff officers had scouted that morning. The only way to get there was to countermarch back to their starting point, turn east along the Fairfield Road, and then south down the Ravine Road. Longstreet was annoyed by this hitch, but relented to McClaws' suggestion simply because there was no time to argue. Captain Johnson not only failed to ascertain the correct disposition of the Union forces that morning, he also failed to find a proper concealed route. Johnson would later pass blame on Longstreet for putting him in a position he was ill-prepared for. He claimed that he was under the impression that he was only in an advisory role, and not literally guiding the rebel column, but contemporary evidence shows that this wasn't the case. General McClaws wrote after the battle, quote, Major Johnson came to me and said that he was ready to conduct my division. Within 10 minutes, it was in motion, and Major Johnston and myself went ahead of it some 200 yards, end quote. Clearly, McClaws, who was no strong supporter of Longstreet, believed that Johnston was his guide, not simply an advisor. It seems as if Johnston was trying to find a scapegoat for his shoddy scouting, and Longstreet was the easiest target. Some historians also discount that General Lee was pretty much present for most of this. He'd been with Longstreet for most of the morning and the beginning of the march in the afternoon. If he'd wanted Longstreet to ride at the head of the column, he could have easily ordered him to do so. Another strange incident that confused the situation even more was that Colonel Porter Alexander, whose battalion of artillery had moved out ahead of the infantry, had managed to find a path that led them out of the view of the Union signalmen without having to backtrack. In his memoirs, he wrote, quote, I avoided that part of the road by turning out to the left and going through the fields and hollows and getting back to the road again a quarter mile or so beyond, unquote. Alexander even rode back to McClaw's division and attempted to find an officer of some authority whom to inform of his alternate route, 
but never managed to come across Longstreet or McClaws, and thus the opportunity was lost. It took nearly two hours for the rebels of the First Corps to retrace their steps and move into position between the Pitzer schoolhouse and the Sherfy farm. The irony of the situation was that the attempts at concealment were all in vain, as Longstreet's chief of staff, Lieutenant Colonel Moxley Sorrell, later wrote, quote, We were seen from the start and signaled constantly. Much valuable time was lost by this trial, with which better knowledge of the ground by General Lee's engineers would not have been attempted, unquote. Many would later write that this delay doomed the rebel attack on July 2nd, but weirdly it worked to their benefit. More on that later. Longstreet met with McClaws shortly before 4 p.m. when the attack was getting set to begin. He asked the division commander, How are you going in? McClaws responded, That will be determined when I can see what is in my front. Longstreet, based on Lee's intelligence reports, assured him, There is nothing in your front. You will be entirely on the flank of the enemy. To which McClaws declared, then I will continue my march in columns of companies, and after arriving on the flank as far as is necessary, will face to the left and march on the enemy. Their conference ended with Longstreet's short reply, That suits me. Longstreet also talked with Brigadier General Joseph B. Kershaw, one of the brigade commanders in McClaw's division, about how to open the attack. But when Kershaw's men came out of the woods and advanced toward the Emmitsburg Road, a shocking discovery was made. The Peach Orchard in his front was occupied by a significant Federal force. They had expected to find no Union troops in the area. Not only did their lines reach the high ground at the Peach Orchard, but it extended back to the southeast toward the rocky ridge known as the Devil's Den. The assault, as it had been designed, was no longer possible. They couldn't drive in the Federal flank up the Emmitsburg Road. They didn't even know where the Federal flank was now. What had changed from Johnson's reconnaissance between 4.30 and 7.30 a.m., and 3.30 p.m. when McClaw's division was finally ready. Much earlier that morning, Major General Dan Sickles had been given orders to move the Union Third Corps from its bivouac to replace Geary's division on Cemetery Ridge, with its left flank anchored on Little Round Top. During the morning, General Meade made preparations for the day at the Leicester Farm, which had been chosen as his headquarters. The house and farm was owned by Lydia Leicester, a 54-year-old widowed woman who moved to Gettysburg about a decade prior with her late husband. After he died in 1859, she purchased a small farm just south of Cemetery Hill on the Tawnytown Road in 1861, and at the time of the battle, she lived there with two of her daughters. Her sister, Catherine Slider, lived on a nearby farm near Big Round Top. Leicester and her children fled the home at the outset of the battle. The Union High Command found it abandoned and made it the headquarters for the Army Commander, as it was out of view of the Confederate guns, but was close to both Cemetery and Culp's Hill, as well as Cemetery Ridge. At the same time that Lee was devising a plan of attack, Meade himself was trying to formulate his own offensive operational strategy. Coincidentally, both generals believed that using their right wing to attack the enemy's left provided the best opportunity. At around 9am, Meade sent orders to his right wing commander, General Henry Slocum, to reconnoiter the ground north of Culp's Hill in order to determine if it would be a suitable place to make a flanking attack. He also sent out orders to all of his corps commanders to draw up maps of their troop dispositions on the battlefield, as well as all the roads in their sector so that they could get a full picture of the situation. Captain George Meade, the son of the army commander and one of his staff aides, conferred with his father, 
The younger Meade would later recall that he reckoned it was probably the first time that the elder Meade had had a private conversation since he'd taken command of the army back on June 28th. After exchanging pleasantries for a few moments, the general got back down to business and gave orders to his son. Quote, now George, you ride down to Sickles and see what is going on. Unquote. Captain Meade rode to the side of the Third Corps bivouac to find that they'd yet to break camp for the day, and in fact they were not in the correct position. He found Captain Georgie Randolph, the Third Corps' chief of artillery, and asked for General Sickles. Randolph went to find him. Sickles was at that moment trying to get a bit of rest as he'd been up the entire night. Randolph returned and confirmed that they were not yet in position and that Sickles was unsure exactly where the Corps was supposed to go. The young Meade, who felt that he didn't have the authority to make an executive decision, rode back to the Leicester house and informed his father of the situation. An agitated Meade told him to return with instructions that they, quote, were to go into position on the left of the Second Corps, that his right was to connect with the left of the Second Corps, and that he was to prolong with his divisions the line of that corps, occupying the position that General Geary had held the night before, unquote. Captain Meade returned to find Sickles awake and on horseback with his staff officers, readying the men for the day's action. He informed the general of what his father had told him, and Sickles replied that they, quote, would be in position shortly, unquote. Sickles offered an excuse as to why he had been confused before. He claimed that it was because Geary's division had only been massed in the general area and hadn't occupied any particular position. It was a strange remark considering that John Geary himself had sent a staff officer to Sickles earlier that morning, asking for him to relieve his division so he could rejoin the 12th Corps at Culp's Hill. He even suggested sending a staff officer to scout the ground so that he could see its importance and where the troops should be placed. Sickles' only response was that he, quote, would attend to it in due time, unquote. Captain Meade was satisfied that the 3rd Corps was on the move. Before he returned to headquarters, Captain Randolph requested that he send General Henry Hunt, the Army's chief of artillery, to come to their new position to help with the placement of artillery. As Sickles rode forward, he was bothered by some of the terrain features in his front. Though there were parts of Cemetery Ridge that offered decent ground for defense, the southern slope was of rather low elevation. It dipped into a valley that then rose into Little Round Top. Sickles' corps was to face west, where the ground rose into a subtle ridge where the Emmitsburg Road intersected with the Wheatfield Road at Joseph Sherfy's Peach Orchard. Sickles feared that if the Confederates advanced and took control of the Peach Orchard, they could mass their artillery there, and it would greatly endanger the position of his troops. He decided to talk with the Army commander in person, so he and Major Henry Tremaine, one of his staff officers, rode to the Leicester House. It was around 11 a.m. and Meade was under the impression that the battle could start at any moment. He'd hoped to get the jump on the Army of Northern Virginia, but finally after two hours of silence, General Slocum and Warren both concurred that the terrain around Culp's Hill was not suitable for an attack. The ground was rocky and marshy, which would make the movement of artillery extremely difficult. At least for the time, Meade gave up the idea of attacking Lee's left. General Sickles and Major Tremaine arrived at Meade's headquarters. Sickles asked for permission to advance his corps forward to occupy the ridge at the Peach Orchard. Meade initially denied his request and reiterated that his right was to connect with Hancock's left and that his own left should reach the summit of Little Round Top. Sickles wouldn't simply drop the matter. He emphasized that the Peach Orchard's suitability for artillery placement and argued that it would be disastrous if the Confederates gained control over it. He asked if he was authorized to place his troops as he saw fit, to which Meade replied, quote, Certainly within the limits of the general instructions I have given you. Any ground within those limits you choose to occupy, I leave to you. Unquote. 
To placate Sickles, Meade sent General Henry Hunt to inspect the ground to determine if it was advisable to advance forward to the Emmitsburg Road. Sickles, along with several staff officers and General Hunt, rode back to Cemetery Ridge and then forward along the Wheatfield Road until they reached the Peach Orchard. Hunt agreed with Sickles' assessment that the ridge was a good position in and of itself, but he worried that by advancing the left wing of the army so far forward would make it difficult to maintain the structure of the Union defensive line. In order to link his right with the left flank of the Second Corps, they would have to be angled back towards Cemetery Ridge. Similarly, in order to occupy Little Round Top, his left would also have to be angled back to the southeast. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. His lines would then resemble a V-shape, and would therefore create a salient position, meaning a section of the line that stuck out, and might make for a prime target for the enemy to attack. Sickles simply did not have enough troops to extend his lines and maintain contact with the rest of the army. The Sixth Corps had still not yet arrived, which meant that there were any available reinforcements to bolster Sickles' position. While they scouted the position, the sound of artillery fire in the direction of Cemetery Hill could be heard. Hunt feared that this meant the Confederates were attacking, and told Sickles that he needed to see what was happening with his guns. Before he rode off, Sickles asked him for permission to occupy the Peach Orchard. Hunt responded, quote, Not on my authority. I will report to General Meade for his instructions, unquote. And then he spurred his horse into a gallop back toward the Leicester House. When he returned, he informed Meade of Sickles' request and asked him to inspect the lines for himself. Hunt then rode off to Cemetery Hill. Over the course of the afternoon, Meade slowly lost control over the situation. I think it was a combination of newness to command, poor communication, and simply the disobedience of his orders. He became aware of increased Confederate activity, particularly southwest of Gettysburg and the area of Seminary Ridge. It was believed that the rebels occupied Seminary Ridge to some degree, probably A.P. Hill's Third Corps, but their exact position was obscured by the terrain of the tree line. The Union Third Corps filed into their respective positions as the afternoon grew on, but Sickles was worried about a few things. In his front was the heavily wooded southern portion of Seminary Ridge. He feared that the rebel infantry might be massing for an attack in the woods on the property of Samuel Pitzer. Around noon, Colonel Hiram Burdan was ordered to advance into Pitzer's woods to reveal that the Confederates occupied the area. Hiram Burdan was born in western New York in 1824 and made a name for himself before the Civil War as a mechanical engineer and perhaps the most skilled target shooter in the country. He invented a musket ball and a rifle, both of which earned him a great deal of money and fame. At the outset of the Civil War, he recruited two regiments of elite marksmen that eventually were organized into the 1st and 2nd United States sharpshooters. Initially, they carried their own weapons, but by 1862 they were all equipped with breech-loading sharps rifles. They also stood out for their unique uniforms, which included green kepis, jackets and pants, along with leather shin leggings. Colonel Burdan led 100 sharpshooters with support from the 3rd Maine Infantry Regiment and advanced beyond the picket line of the 3rd Corps into Pitzer's Woods. It was around the same time that General Richard Anderson's division of A.P. Hill's 3rd Corps moved into position along Seminary Ridge. Anderson's division was to be a part of the Confederate attack that day. Longstreet is usually criticized for his slowness on the morning of July 2nd, but Hill's troops didn't get into position to attack until noon, and they had far less marching to do. Anderson's right flank was represented by the brigade of Brigadier General Cadmus Wilcox. Wilcox was a Tennessean and a graduate of the West Point class of 1846, where he finished 54 out of 59. He served as an infantry officer in the Mexican War, and at the outbreak of the Civil War, he was a captain in the New Mexico Territory. 
He left the U.S. Army and was commissioned as a colonel of an Alabama infantry regiment, which he led at the First Battle of Bull Run. He was promoted to brigade command in October of 1861, and at Gettysburg he still led that same brigade. Wilcox's Alabama brigade was ordered into Pitzer's Woods and was to protect the right flank of Anderson's division. Union infantry skirmishers and cavalry were thought to be in the area, but it was unknown if they were in the woods. As the Alabamians advanced in the woods, they spotted Federal officers on horseback. They were then fired upon by Burdan's sharpshooters. When they spotted the advancing rebels, Burdan sent back an officer to inform General Burney that the Confederate line was much farther south than they had originally believed. Burdan knew that he was outnumbered, but the sharpshooters had to live up to their reputation as elite soldiers, and fought off several full-sized infantry regiments. Their cover in the woods offered them great protection, and their accurate rifles took a toll on the advancing rebels. Their dander was up and they charged the Alabamians, but once they'd gotten into the open field, they were met with a devastating volley of musket fire. They were forced to fall back into the woods and then to the line of the 3rd Maine Regiment. But the 8th and 10th Alabama infantry pressed them hard and they were forced to retreat further to the east until they were out of range. The fight was short but intense. Confederate casualties aren't known, but 19 of Burdan's men were killed, wounded, or captured. 48 soldiers of the 3rd Maine also became casualties. Burdan and his men later claimed to have accomplished a great feat by discovering the Confederate position, delaying their attack, and inflicting significant casualties. The latter two points are highly questionable, but the first was true. Major Tremaine of Sicklestaff was sent to Meade to inform him of the rebel presence on the southern portion of Seminary Ridge. Tremaine also expressed Sickles' concern that his left was unprotected and his wagon train was vulnerable to capture. Meade, rather dismissively, assured him that cavalry was screening the area to the south. That morning, General Buford's cavalry occupied the ground that Sickles' infantry began to move into during the early afternoon. Two days earlier, Buford had informed General Alfred Pleasanton that his division was worn out and in great need of rest and refitting. The first day's battle prevented him from being relieved, and by the second, his troopers, and their horses especially, were quite worn out. Pleasanton ordered that Buford should lead his division to the Army supply base at Westminster once they were relieved. When the infantry of the 3rd Corps showed up, Buford thought that meant they were free to go, and rode off. When it was discovered that Buford's division had completely withdrawn, Meade sent angry messages to Pleasanton, reminding him that he'd not been given permission to send Buford to Westminster, and that he needed to send another cavalry unit to replace them. Pleasanton didn't get around to sending such orders to General David Gregg until 1.45, but Gregg's troopers would not get there in time. In the early afternoon, the last two brigades of the 3rd Corps arrived from Emmitsburg, along with several batteries of artillery. They were now at full strength, and began to move into the position selected by Sickles. The 3rd Corps consisted of two divisions of infantry and a brigade of artillery. The 1st Division was led by Major General David Burney. Burney was born in Huntsville, Alabama in 1825. His father, John G. Burney, was born into a prominent slaveholding family in Kentucky and grew up to be a successful lawyer and politician of some note. Burney, 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 Burney. Eventually, he left Kentucky for Alabama, where he opened a law practice and was elected mayor of Huntsville in 1829. James Burney's views on slavery changed over the years. He'd owned slaves all of his adult life, but he eventually became a devout Christian, which led him to emancipate his slaves, and he became an abolitionist. The family continued to move around. They migrated back to Kentucky, then Cincinnati, where Burney became an anti-slavery newspaper publisher until a pro-slavery mob forced them to flee to Michigan, before they eventually settled in Philadelphia. He was twice chosen as the presidential candidate for the Liberty Party, 
a short-lived minor political party of the mid-19th century that was dedicated to the abolition of slavery. In 1844, he received 2% of the national vote, which was enough to cost Henry Clay the election, and James K. Polk became president. David Burney would follow in his father's footsteps and became a lawyer. Shortly after the Confederates attacked Fort Sumter, David Burney recruited and equipped the 23rd Pennsylvania Infantry Regiment, which he was appointed colonel of. Despite his lack of military experience, he quickly rose to brigade and then division command just after the Second Battle of Bull Run. He was promoted to Major General right after Chancellorsville. His three brigades were led by Brigadier General Charles Graham, a former U.S. Navy sailor and Mexican war veteran from New York City, Brigadier General John Henry Hobart Ward, a sergeant major in the Antebellum Army and Mexican war veteran also from New York City, and Colonel Philippe Régis Denis de Carendern de Trobriand. De Trobriand was a French nobleman and son of a general who'd served under Napoleon. He immigrated to the U.S. on a dare and married into a wealthy New York family. In 1861, he became a U.S. citizen and recruited a regiment of French émigrés living in New York and was given a colonel's commission. The 2nd Division was led by the only senior officer in the 3rd Corps who'd attended the U.S. Military Academy, Brigadier General Andrew A. Humphreys. Humphreys was born in Philadelphia in 1810 and graduated from West Point in 1831. In 1836, he served in the First Seminole War, where he became disillusioned with military service and became ill. He left the Army, recovered physically, but after only a year in private life, returned to the Army as an engineer. In the first year of the war, he served as the chief engineer for the Army of the Potomac, but eventually was given command of an infantry brigade and then a division during the Maryland Campaign. Though he was seen by many as an excellent officer, he was distrusted by some of the officials in Washington due to the close relationship he had with Confederate President Jefferson Davis, whom he knew during Davis's time as Secretary of War in the 1850s. Humphreys was also disliked by his soldiers because he was known for being a strict disciplinarian. His three brigades were led by Brigadier General Joseph Carr, an Irish-American tobacconist from Albany, New York, whose only military experience came from leading a New York militia regiment, Colonel William Brewster, a Connecticut Yankee who moved to Brooklyn and helped recruit one of the regiments of Sickles' Excelsior Brigade, which Brewster now led, and Colonel George Burling, a New Jersey coal merchant and an antebellum militia officer who was promoted to brigade command just after Chancellorsville. Humphrey's division went into position parallel to the Emmitsburg Road, with its left flank touching the Peach Orchard along the Wheatfield Road and its right flank just southeast of the Kadori Farm. Burney's division went into line on their left, beginning at the Peach Orchard and then stretching back to the farm owned by George Rose. Rose bought the property in 1858, though he didn't live there until 1868. His brother John Rose and his family occupied the farm at the time of the battle. The Rose's property extended west of the Emmitsburg Road and was bordered to the north by the Wheatfield Road and the Sherfy Peach Orchard, to the east by the eastern branch of Plum Run, and to the south by the property of the Slider family. The Roses mainly grew wheat, corn, and oats, and the property included prominent features like Stony Hill, Roses Woods, and an open 20-acre wheat field in the northeast corner of the farm. The left flank of Bernie's division would eventually extend down to the Devil's Den. Devil's Den is a unique geological feature on the southern portion of Hawks Ridge, situated between the eastern and western branches of Plum Run. The hill is covered with many large boulders as a result of glacial erosion millions of years ago. Many tourists who visit Gettysburg assumed that the name Devil's Den was a reference to the battle fought there on July 2nd. It was common for infamous sections of various battlefields to take on nicknames like the Hornet's Nest at Shiloh or Bloody Lane at Antietam. 
The name Devil's Den, however, predates the Civil War. A popular myth which popped up just after the war held that locals called it that because of the presence of a large snake, nicknamed the Devil. Don't mess with the Devil, buddy! We're number one, we beat anybody. We're the Devils! The Devils! <sighs> the snake, which evaded locals for years, would hide in one of the many rock crevices, and thus it became known as the Devil's Den. Though there might be a kernel of truth to the statement, mainly that Devil's Den was a popular spot for snakes to sun during summer months, it probably was given that name by pious German Protestants who believed that rocky areas, which made farming impossible, were occupied by the devil. Between 1.30 and 2 p.m., George Meade received messages from the signalmen at Little Round Top. The movement of a large body of Confederate infantry was seen in the distance, but there was some confusion as to where they were headed. It appears that when McClaws made his countermarch back to Hare Ridge, it deceived the signalmen, who believed that Lee was shifting troops around to attack Meade's right flank. Shortly after, Major Tremaine arrived with news that Burdan's sharpshooters had encountered rebel infantry in Pitzer's Woods, which indicated that they were preparing for an attack on Meade's left. Because an attack seemed imminent, at 3 p.m., Meade sent out couriers to call all corps commanders to his headquarters. All the corps commanders arrived at the Leicester House shortly after, except for General Sickles and Sedgwick, whose 6th Corps was still en route to the battlefield. Meade waited for Sickles, but grew impatient. Two more couriers were sent to find him. Then, General Governor Warren received a report that the 3rd Corps was not in the correct position. Meade was incensed. When General George Sykes, now in command of Meade's old 5th Corps, arrived at headquarters, Meade ordered him to bring up his corps to support the left wing. Guides would be sent to make sure that they were in the correct position. At 3.30, he decided to leave the Leicester House and personally see to the situation on the left when Sickles finally arrived. Captain William H. Payne, one of Warren's staff officers, later wrote, quote, I never saw General Meade so angry, unquote. Quite a feat considering Meade's reputation of having a volcanic temper. He told Sickles not to dismount and instead returned to his corps so he could put them in the correct spot. Meade, Warren, and their staffs followed. When they arrived, Meade became furious. Humphrey's division was marching toward the Emmitsburg Road. Bernie's division was stretched from the peach orchard to the wheat field. They'd advanced hundreds of yards ahead of where they should have been. Meade chastised Sickles' decision. Though some would defend Sickles, saying that he misinterpreted Meade's orders, he himself was pretty clear that he made the decision knowing full well what his orders were. He knowingly disobeyed them. One justification that has been submitted in defense of Sickles is that his experience at the Battle of Chancellorsville informed his decision. The high ground of the Peach Orchard reminded him of Hazel Grove, which he had been ordered to withdraw by General Hooker during the battle. The Confederates deployed artillery there and used the position to devastating effect. Sickles didn't want to give the Army of Northern Virginia the opportunity to use the Peach Orchard for the same purpose. Nevertheless, he'd isolated his corps and inadvertently put them right in the path of the oncoming Confederate attack. Confederate guns on Warfield Ridge were already firing shells at the Union troops in the Peach Orchard. Sickles told Meade that he'd withdraw back to Cemetery Ridge, but Meade replied, quote, I wish to God you could, sir, but the enemy will not let you withdraw. But you have to come back, and you may as well do it at once as at any other time, unquote. Sickles sent orders to his division commanders to pull back a few hundred yards. The artillery barrage increased in intensity. It seemed that the attack was about to come. Meade told Devil Dan not to withdraw and to hold his position. Reinforcements from the 5th Corps would be on the field any moment and would support them. Meade and his staff rode off, 
when an artillery shell burst near his horse, which scared the animal and nearly caused Meade to be thrown. After the horse was under control, they continued back to the Leicester house. General Warren and his staff were sent to Little Round Top to survey the scene and get infantry on the hill. Unfortunately, that's where I'm going to leave off for today. We're already at about an hour now, and there's a lot of action left, so I'm dedicating the next episode just to the fighting on July 2nd. Hopefully that'll be out very soon, and we'll pick back right up when the Confederates finally begin their attack. Thanks for listening, folks. My name is Joe Barton, and this has been, excuse me, History. Old Mrs. Mary Wilde Weaver, William was the gay deceiver. Look away, look away, look away, Dixieland. And when he put his arm around her, he smiled as fierce as a forty-pounder. Look away, look away, look away, Dixieland. I wish I was in Dixie, hooray, hooray. In Dixieland, I'll take my stand to live and die in Dixie. Away, away, away down south in Dixie.